Welcome to VS Voices. I'm Amanda Decadene. In this episode, I speak with actor, producer, and advocate Priyanka Chopra Jonas. We talk about reaching rock bottom with grief, finding a life partner from a totally different background, and getting comfortable with life being a bit messy. I hear you great. Um, I have, it's like seven, it's 8 a.m. here in L.A., and it's like almost the end of my day. Yeah. So I'm so sorry to make you do this That's so early. okay. That's okay. I hope your coffee is kicked in. <laughs> I, I know, right? Well, it hasn't. I've got it right here. Oh, shit. <laughs> I've got it right here. And I'm just going to drink it throughout our interview. You should. Oh. You absolutely should. So you're in London? Yes, ma'am. My hometown. In is it? Where, where in London are you from? Like which part? Chelsea. Oh, look at that. I've been in London through its worst because, it, I mean, through its worst lockdown, not through its worst. London cannot be worst. No, um, it cannot. But <laughs> it, it can't. It's just one of the most beautiful cities in the world. But I've, it was so miserable to see this incredibly joyous, alive city. Just, you know, the tabletops upturned. The, I remember walking in Mayfair. And all the tables were upturned and the chairs were upturned and there was, it was like a movie scene almost. And this is like February and there were, you know, these dry leaves just flying by. And I swear to God, I had a moment. I just turned around, went back into my car and I was like, let's just go home. I know it is really sad. It's really, really sad. I mean, you know, I think London, you know, my family's there, my mom is there and my dad is there and you know, I've not been able to go. And then my passport expired during COVID. And so having to get a new passport, a new English passport. During COVID. I still don't even have it because it all, there's no like expediting. And I haven't been there and I haven't seen anyone in over two years. (gasps) It's awful. So awful. But you know, it is what it is. So you're known as an actor, a singer, a producer, an investor, and an advocate. Do you think, would you say all of those are accurate? Um, I think I'm a little bit more, I would say complex than that or more interesting than that, that I just don't have buckets and like boxes that I like to check. It's um, my journey has been very self-made, self-taught, you know, um, I've been banged and bruised and I've kind of had to stand up myself again and uh, I didn't have too many people holding my hand during this time. I came from a background of, you know, physicians and academia. And I wanted to be an engineer and I was thrown into arts, which I didn't even know I had an aptitude towards at that point. I just liked being in school plays and like singing, but I came from a family that it was never, it was never a considered profession or, you know, it was never like arts, who makes money with arts? Like who pays the bills? But, um, I've I've always sort of needed to, you know, make a path of my own. And I think I just don't know how to label that. So I would say multiple, a lot of them are accurate, but they're not a whole. Yeah, I feel labels are really limiting and they are for the purpose of the world comprehending who someone is or a piece of who they are. But actually, when I, what I'm more interested in is how would you describe yourself as a human being? What are the human qualities 
that describe you? I'm very hardworking. Um, I am rarely afraid of trying something new, I think. That's beautiful. But I'm, <laughs> but I'm also like a crybaby. Like when I get angry, I cry, which is worst because you're trying to be tough and you're and then I have these big tears that come out of my eyes and I have to deal with my emotions um a well, little you're bit connected I'm very emotional. to your feelings that's good I am and I, that has been inculcated in me my father was very very sensitive as well and you know um but I, I'm and I'm okay with feeling the feelings that I do I, I don't run from them I don't hide from them but I'm also very driven and ambitious so Empathy is a big part of, I think, who I am. I always try to sort of perceive people or meet people by putting myself in their shoes. Let me ask you a question about expressing your feelings. Mm -hmm. How do the people around you make space for that? Because not everyone is comfortable with people feeling their feelings. It's not normalized at all. It's not okay to like feel fear or feel shame and talk about it or feel judged and talk about it. You're supposed to process it alone. And because that's the culture we've created, feelings feel really large when actually if you address them in a very coherent manner and just having a conversation with whoever you're feeling these feelings with, it diffuses it. It takes away the power of how scary they seem when actually you discuss it. So over time, and this is again something I've learned in my you know second half of my 40s, I didn't know this in my 20s, is that it just I don't need the drama of extreme emotions. I can just normalize them, have conversations with people I work with, talk with, and just try to reach a place where it's not dramatic and we're all just functional and have, enjoying this beautiful gift called life. Mm, gosh, it's, it's so good to hear that you um, are so comfortable in yourself. It sounds to me like you have done a lot of work to be able to um, own who you are and to feel comfortable oh, in your skin. It's absolutely been a journey. I mean, I, I sometimes when I hear myself back, I'm like, girl, you sound like you know everything. I don't. I really don't. I kind of come to a new consensus every day from whatever has happened in my life the previous day. And, you know, there are days you wake up when it's just all of it is too much and too hard and you have to be your hype man and hype woman and tell yourself to get out there because, you know, when you've got to show up and you have a commitment, no one else is going to know what you're coming from. And especially being a public person, when I go out to do my job, no one knows where I'm coming from. If I've slept three hours or four hours, or if I've had a fight with whoever, or if I'm like feeling failure or any of those feelings, people don't want to see that, you know, no. people just want to see what they want to see. Mm. So there is not really a safe space to project those human feelings. So I sort of incubate them and I'm very private. My, my family, my home, my feelings, my emotions, I keep them very closely guarded. And, and rightly so, because that's the safest place to allow them to be and to process. And it's a healthy place to be yes. because social media is not a safe space. No. And the internet is not a safe no, space. So absolutely not. protect yourself and share yourself with the people who love you versus just you yeah, know, a large everybody. community of, of 
people we don't know, a large community of anonymity. 100%. So that's a, that you bring up something which I want to talk to you about, which is to do with what you show on social media versus what you keep private. Do you have kind of areas or specific things? Like for me, I don't really show my kids on social media. It's a very, very rare day. And now my kids are older and they have a choice if they want to be on social media. But I, for many years, I would never show their faces. And I still am uncomfortable with that. That's an area for me that's like, I don't do that. What are the areas for you that you keep off of social media? So, I mean, I, have, I don't have kids yet, so I don't know how I feel about that. Um, it's something I would love to think about sooner than later. But um, I think for me, I don't like digging too deep. You know, I I will maybe, you know, show an image of me and my husband or me and my mom and my brother. And I'll be like, OK, Merry Christmas. But you'll never see like what actually happens within the sacred safe space of my home. Like it's it's a little bit um, ornamental, I feel like what I share. Uh, and unless I'm having a moment where I feel vulnerable and I'll, you know, talk about my feelings in a caption or something, which I have done, but they're few and far in between. I've I've had to, I guess, build a a very hard exterior. I started this business when I was 17, you know, in um a predominantly patriarchal industry. And you kind of had to toughen up and pull up your boots and just survive. And you're not allowed to feel anything. So I think for a long time, I built myself to be a survivor, you know, to be a, a street dog who's just like, yeah. I'm going to do whatever I need and, yeah. and, and do it with grace and dignity. That now that I'm in a comfortable place with myself, my life as a woman, I don't know how to undo that. Like, I don't know how to undo the, the desire to constantly look like I'm in control. Mm. Well, I don't think there is, that's necessarily a choice, at least in my experience, the, 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 we're not in control. I mean, we think we are. And, you know, there's that great um, phrase, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. And that's... Oh, absolutely. <laughs> you so know. social media is a curated version of what you want people yes. to believe, right? Yes. And that's just projection. So I'm, I'm talking about like, I've also, over time, because perfection or you know having everything tied up in a neat little bow is something we've been taught specifically as women very also much so. as public people that everything should be neat and tidy and it can't be messy done that for such a long time that now I'm getting to a place when I'm really unlearning it mm. because I'm more confident about who I am that I'm okay with being a little messy and I'm okay with talking about things that I may have vehemently protected my whole life like I never spoke about a relationship in my life before my husband for some reason. I just didn't. I didn't want to be defined by it. And suddenly he comes along and I'm like, you know what? This feels comfortable. It feels like I do want to not think about, you know, um, not think about my actions vis-a-vis -vis what is expected of me, but actually just do, you know, be giddy and have fun and just like, Live we'll your life. Four o'clock in the morning and live your life. Like I didn't, I hadn't thought of all of that because I'd kept myself so tightly wound that 
I don't know, I'm in a place now almost approaching 40, learning how to how to live. <laughs> oh, but you know, that's like you said, it's like we learn survival skills in order to, you know, make it work, you know, in, in, in certain environments. And you grew up, as you said, in a largely patriarchal society. And so, you know, I actually wonder what it was like for you growing up, where there was such a, in India, where there was such a massive gender and caste divide. How did witnessing um, that inform the work that you do in the world, specifically your advocacy work? Because that must have impacted you a lot. I think growing up in India is the definition of who I am. It's my pride and it's um, it's what I take before I even introduce myself is the fact that I come from this incredible land of legacy. And I think that, um, you know, having traveled around the world, I've seen the the skewed nature of human life everywhere you go. Every country has its own version of it. And, um, you know, and even the gender disparity, every country has its own version of it, of um, where women stand in in the scheme of things. So while these dichotomies exist in, I think, India and large parts of the world, like we had a prime minister who was female in the 80s, you know, so there is... There's that as well, where there's like so much progress. Women are, um, women are worshipped. Our deities are predominantly women, and but at the same time, you know, women are treated with um, with a disparity that's it's so hard to understand if you go into deeper parts of the country or even deeper parts of many parts of the world where, you know, women are don't have a choice in their own lives, where women don't have a say in. Um, who they want to become dreams aspirations is like it's it's a far that itself is a faraway dream so having witnessed and seen that definitely i think shaped me wanting to be able to you know be the voice that magnifies a lot of these girls that don't have that opportunity and i didn't know i had that i only realized that that i could do that was when i became a public person and i was like oh hello now if i'm talking about something somebody's reading it so this is now i've become a medium um the means to an end and i want my purpose to be larger than just my work or my life i want my purpose to have meant something and i try to do my best in terms of you know being an advocate but it's just um, being an activist and like talking about the things that matter to me. Um, I try very hard to incorporate that in my life. When you moved to America the first time, um, I believe you came here for high school, right? Yes, I did. I was 13. That must have been a big culture shock. And Oh, yes, definitely. <laughs> um, while I was in India, I was just preteen, right? Like 12, just about aware of the world. My impression of America was, you know, 90210 or Saved by the Bell and like high schools that have like these colored lockers. And and my mom used to watch Bold and the Beautiful and like everyone is always dressed and everyone is rich and everyone lives in mansions. And that was my impression as a 12 year old arriving into Cedar Rapids, Iowa. And I, it was, I, I was actually visiting my mom's sister and I got so enamored by my cousin's high school, which looked exactly like Saved by the Bell. It had so much space. Like that's the first thing that struck to me about America mm. is everything was huge. 
Oh my Those gosh, right? Schools are huge. <laughs> food is huge. Everything is huge. And, you know, when you come from a country that has almost 1.7 billion people in that much of a space, you're like, what are you talking about? That's what this I is thought. so luxurious. Coming from England to America, <laughs> I had the same experience. Everything was so big, like the streets, the cars, the food. I was like, this is <laughs> like giant land. Yeah, totally. Um, in my head, that was the impression. But I think when it comes to prejudice, I didn't see that happen for the first two or three years that I lived here until I, you know, was in 10th grade. and. Um, I realize how racism is so deep-seated in human nature. And it's not just in America, and it's not just within black, white, brown, or the various races around the world. Racism and colorism and favoritism and just basically, you know, taking away opportunity because of a like or a belief from another human when I turned, I think, 15, 16, not only because it happened to me, but I was a lot more aware of how much it's happening around the world in different ways. Um, and I think that's, that is something to stand up for, fight for, eventually, you know, equal opportunity and a lack of bias is what we all need in the way we, we view the world. And I just find it really amazing that, you know, race and color has, is such a large conversation in today's world. It's sort of defeating sometimes. We're one world. We're literally like a couple of continents that came up from the same ocean, you know, build on the same planet. Same we have moon same eyes, sun. nose, same <laughs> mouth, like same features. Like how are, it's, it's so you know, prime, it's like medieval to me as a thought that we're still having these conversations and that our children might still have to have these conversations. Yeah, I mean, that was a question I was, I was going to ask you, which is there, are, we've had more awareness of, you know, bias, unconscious bias, racism, you know, deep, deep prejudice over the last couple of years, certainly in America and globally. But in reality, I wanted to know how much you think has actually changed. I think the the volume is louder. Like, I feel like it's not like suddenly we have access to all the information in the world and that's why we're all woke. But I think it's like everyone has a camera phone. So now we know what real things are actually happening, things we would have never heard of, prejudices we would have never seen, you know, racism that we would have never witnessed. But because people have the access of information of the internet, now suddenly there's accountability. So I feel like that's a cool thing to have that power. As a young person in the world today, I feel like I have the power of information. I have the power of being able to create a movement uh, about something that i believe in. Now that can be good and bad. Now that can work, you know, in a good way and that can work in, in a bad way. And and we've seen that happen as well. Because so people can find their tribes, right? In whichever exactly. and way they want to. A good tribe, yeah. according to me, you can find, you know, the sure. bad version of sure. that. And and it, that's the tricky thing about, you know, the the internet and living in the world of information, it's really important for us to have that dialogue because only when we have that dialogue over and over again and we reiterate what 
um, an unbiased world would look like and we reiterate what a sustainable world would look like or a peaceful world would look like, maybe we can make this tribe larger, but it'll only happen with consistent conversation. And also the people who are having those consistent conversations, creating a version of that reality in many forms or whatever form we can so that we mm-hmm. can actually look to something tangible, right? Because Exactly. Yeah, and I think, I think that's the, the phase that I am excited to see is after all this immense awareness, which is, as you know, the first stage of action is the awareness of change. And then what do we do moving forward where we can create tangible change in these de- different areas? And I, I hope that the work from many of the advocates who are really leading the charge, I hope that we're going to be able to see real infrastructure change, but it takes so long, you know? But it's also like, I have to say, it's terrifying sometimes. There's an unrealistic expectation sometimes, I think, online of people to take a side and to pick a side and say that, you know, you're right or you're, you know, wrong. But most of us live in greys. Most of us have beliefs in greys. And I think acceptance and understanding of where people come from is a better step versus um you know trying to tell people to change i i love what you said about removing the judgment because judging people for being right or wrong doesn't help bring people together to move forward and i think there is and then you're just stuck yeah you're in groundhog day because because everyone's on their sides and i i feel the same way as you i really I'm interested in having conversations that bring people together, differing opinions. It's, you know, to try to understand each other and find a middle path and in ways that work and removing that judgment and being able to say, okay, we can, we can agree to disagree, but, but let's find a way to move forward still. So I'm, I'm with you on that one. Um, As an Indian woman, you're married to an American man. Has it been um, an education for him to, to understand how differently I'm sure your experience in the U.S. is as a woman who came from India as it is from him being a, a white male in the U.S. Oh, absolutely. But I think that awareness, Nick had that awareness before me as well. Um, I think him and his family are so deep-rooted and come from service and he's very giving, but at the same time, he's very, very understanding of, and it's one of those traits that I love about him, of understanding of different people being different and having an inherent acceptance of, you know, the world is made up of all kinds of people and that's the family that we are. And it's so amazing to me that we were raised in different parts of the world with the same beliefs and the same value system. And neither having an idea of each other's careers because we were both so busy building our own careers at that time. I didn't know much about the Jonas Brothers. He definitely didn't know much about me. So it it was really interesting when we got together to sort of not just have our cultures marry and clash, but to also be able to um, peel layers of getting to know each other's lives. And we've both had... (laughs) <laughs> two decades of public lives, you know, and we could we got to experience that all over with each other and and that was lovely. Yeah, isn't it wild what you said about coming from different cultures, but the you know, who you are as people and your I'm sure your ethics and your principles line up and and that that is, you know, that's beautiful. 
So you have been married for three years, and much of that has been in lockdown, which I think is like double time <laughs> marriage. That's like six years, in my opinion. Um, <laughs> it was the first time I'd had my husband home and not on tour in a very long time. So for me, I have found, you know, this time very interesting. But have you lived through a tour yet? And yes, only one. Okay. Okay. Just and how one. was that? But for also you? because I was filming myself at that time, I only came in and out. So I've never really done a full tour with him. But I've been on tour because as Indian actors, we used to we also do tours um, oh. because we have music in our um in all our movies. So actors, you know, we do tours and we do stage shows and stuff like that. So I've done my own and I've been on one as a wife, but because I was a working wife, I didn't really experience the whole tour. I used to come on my weekends. I used to come for the fun shows, like the big venues <laughs> and stuff like that. We have twins who are 14 years old. Oh my goodness. I got pregnant on tour. And so every time I <sighs> would course. show up, they were like, oh, she must be ovulating. <laughs> I would show up in random cities that nobody would want to go to, you know. Um, and I actually yeah. did get pregnant on that tour. And I was Oh. pregnant with twins trying to sleep on a bunk on the bus and at the end I got so big I couldn't fit in the bunk and I couldn't go on tour anymore but I do love a tour bus do you like I, I didn't I was a little unsure and I was like I don't know I'm used to being in trailers that don't move right like <laughs> as an actor my trailer is not supposed you're not supposed to sleep in a trailer or eat in a trailer like I only know that you do that on a road trip not when you're working and you have to wake up and do your job but um, my husband was convincing and <laughs> we did it in Europe. And I was like, this is not, this is like so amazing. This tour bus, the bunk beds, like it's like a home on wheels. And um, and I actually slept like a baby. I felt oh, like wow. I was being rocked to sleep. Oh yeah. my gosh. Oh my gosh. That's amazing. <laughs> well, I just want to say that, um, yeah, I'll, I'm, uh, I'm here for any, I'm here for any uh, touring tips. I need that. That's yeah. true because he's going on tour now. They just kickstarted their tour. So I'm hoping if I can go back from London, then maybe I'll need some of those tips and tricks. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you talked about um, how you married your cultures. And I remember seeing a photograph of you and your husband in what I think would have been um, traditional um, Indian attire. It was just beautiful. I remember thinking at the time, wow, this man is honoring this woman with such complete commitment that he is um, embracing her culture in a really honorable way. As a visual, it was very impactful because the way society is structured is we're largely living in a patriarchal society. And to see that your man was coming forward into your world, it, it, it gave a very clear message. That's why, what I meant by marrying the culture, because the way you responded to that image of him in, you know, wearing a pagri and wearing the Indian wedding outfit, a lot of Indians reacted to me in the white dress because we get married in red. Um, we actually wear white at funerals. <laughs> oh, I love that though. That's great. So I just think like it was so, it was so amazing and interesting to me that both those images were not natural to how we had grown up, but were so embracing of each other. 
how did your Indian community respond to seeing your your partner in that Indian, you know, attire? I think they loved it. And I think they they really like there was a social media hashtag I remember which said at our wedding, which was National Jiju. Um, and Jiju means like brother-in-law. So basically he married the entire country, not just me. Um, and there was that kind of acceptance of him. Um, I think Nick can speak to his experience a little bit more than I can. But I think to me, um, my family and, you know, the fans and the community that have probably seen and grown up with me, um, it was really wonderful to see them accepting of Nick in that role, which, you know, was it, it was something that I had protected for a very long time. I was not someone who spoke of relationships or my um or, you know, past relationships. So I think when I respected it, there was a lot of respect that that, you know, he got from the community that gave me has given me that love for so many years. Mm, that's beautiful. And have your cultural spiritual traditions are those also um brought into your marriage i think spiritually nick and i align when it comes to our feelings of and our relationship with our faith of course we've been raised with different faiths i'm a believer that eventually religion is you know um a map to get to the same destination which is god so whatever your faith it has been when you've been raised it's the same direction we're all going in the same direction to a higher power so we both align on that um we both find the ritualistic nature of you know like um both our religions also really um i think easing and when mm. it comes to our spirituality so i do a lot of pujas at the house which are prayer ceremonies and nick usually asks me to do them whenever we're starting something big because that's how I've always started something auspicious in my life um, with a prayer of thanks. And I've had that upbringing and he's had that upbringing. And sort of we've created that within our family as well. Yeah, like you said, you know, faith has many faces and ultimately it, they all do lead to the same direction of whatever your version of a God or higher power is. So I, I love that you have that joint um, anchoring, you know, of, of faith. Um, I want to talk a little bit about your dad um, and your dad um, passed how many years ago now? 2013. So nine, nine years. years. My gosh. Like eight years. That's, it seems like a blink, but at the same time, it seems like it's such a long time. And you were very close to him, right? Mm-hmm. I was. Um, um, my mom used to call us twins. Mm. Yeah. Um, my dad is, is in the process of, of um, he's very sick. My dad is very sick. I apparently am in something called the early stages of grief. Um, and this is a mm. whole new room for me that I've not been in before. So. Um, but when I was reading um, about your relationship with your dad, um, I wanted to talk to you about, you know, how it affected you, his passing, and what the greatest gifts 
of his passing gave you? I was so angry when he died. I was just angry at the world. I was angry at myself for not being able to do more, um, you know, not being able to fly him to maybe a better hospital or find a better clinical trial or like why I had, hadn't I done enough? I, I felt that very viscerally because I'm a very goal-oriented person. You put a problem in front of me and my first instinct is not being overwhelmed. Fix my it. first <laughs> instinct is fixing yeah. it. And I think as we, as women, we naturally have that aptitude. So I blamed myself. I was very angry with myself. I distanced myself from my family. I just, you know, um, buried myself into my work because I couldn't make sense of it very much. And which is silly um, because, you know, my dad had a very aggressive form of cancer and um, it had come back after he had beat it. And so we just didn't have time. And I guess in my mind, I was prepared with the fact that he'd beaten it. And then when it just came back and then it was so quick, the deterioration after that, I just didn't have time to come to terms with it. And I was going through a lot personally um, with the work that I was doing. And, you know, I just started working in America as well. And I was just transitioning to coming to this new country, you know, where nobody really knows the work I've done and having to reintroduce myself and pound the pavement. And, you know, so a lot was going on at that time. And I remember his passing just kind of, silenced everything mm. and I went into a really deep incubation of myself I, I used to go to work but I was very zombie-like I used to not meet friends I stopped all of it hit me together I think I my dad's passing was the last straw you know that broke the camel's back and I just I was just like I gave in, I kind of, which is what I was talking about earlier to you, I allow myself to feel my feelings. Um, and I was angry and I was mad and I was going to work, but I would just go to work, come back home, watch TV for like four hours, sit with myself, order food, allow myself to be gluttonous and allow myself to, you know, when your friend says about the size zero, and this is how it probably happened, but because I was just like eating my emotions at one point in my life and I didn't have the energy to fight it. And I used to go to work. I, I, I had done this for long enough to know I can read my lines and, you know, do my scenes. But I was just not there for a good like two years. And, and then I had to sort of pull myself out of it. I didn't rely on therapy. I, it probably would have been a shorter duration if I had, but I just didn't think it was something for me. Um, I didn't rely on friends, family. I just completely isolated. And one day I just, I missed the sunshine. Mm. And one day I missed being inspired when I went to work and when I came back from work. And I just suddenly looked at myself from a little further back. And I was like, is this what you worked so much for, for like almost 15 years for is this what your dad worked so much my dad and my mom both gave up their profession when I moved to Mumbai because I was 17 mm. so they had a fully built hospital they were in their 40s and their 50s and because my career was took precedent at that point my parents backed up their hospital sold it and moved to a completely new city to start their careers again. Wow. Because I'll never forget my dad said this, that we're doctors, we can pick up and practice medicine anywhere. She can't. She has to go to Mumbai. And 
again, I didn't think about their acts, their sacrifices when I was 17 year old, you know, driven workhorse. Like I didn't think about anyone, but as I look back and this period really helped me, that's what helped me get out because I was like, my dad was so ambitious for me. He wanted me to win in every scenario. He loved entertainment. He loved movies. He loved that I was in the movies and he just was the biggest fan of my career. And I was like, I'm not going to have one if I don't pull myself out of it. And that was a big impetus for me to sort of claw my way out. So his death was very, very instrumental in in me having a really um, life-changing experience and becoming a lot more confident with the woman that I am today, what I stand for, of not being able to be overwhelmed, be level-headed, take on as much as I can do, still strive for excellence. But it really shifted me from being an extreme person to sort of being a more balanced person. Hmm. Because I went through that like hit rock bottom, lived in rock bottom, and then just hated the stench. Yeah, the dark night of the soul, right? Just like <laughs> yeah. living in that. Yeah, and then coming through like a phoenix. And exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um well, and I know no one can do that for you but you. Nobody. Oh my gosh, if someone could, I know I would have found them. <laughs> I know. And we keep asking that question, right? Like when will when will I get over it? Like when will it be over? It never does. As no. soon as you accept the fact that failure, loss, grief, and all of these crippling emotions are not ever going to go away. You just have to compartmentalize them and like pack them away for a while. And there'll be days where they pop out and then they're big. And you know, you drink a glass of rosé and you have a conversation with them. And then there are days where you, they don't come out. And it's, it's just practice over time. And I think learning to live with something, right? Yeah. That's the thing. It becomes a part of your fabric in a way that is integrated and it doesn't take you over in the same way, although there are some days where I think it does. It's a little bit like scars, isn't it? Mm. Like you carry them. They're with you as a reminder of that moment when it happened and how it felt and how painful it is. But it doesn't define who you are. They just kind of exist. And it tells a story. Yeah, and there's many of them coexisting. <laughs> right? Absolutely. <laughs> um, so thank you for sharing that insight. Um, that, was, that was really beautiful to hear. You know, do you think about what your dad would think of your life today and your marriage and your success and everything that you're striving for? Do you have a sense of what he would say? I think he'd be really proud. My mom speaks for both of them to me now. And she watches on the sidelines and there'll be days she'll just come and give me a hug from nowhere. And she'll say, I don't have much to say, but he would have been proud. I try not to think about the moments he's missed. I try to think about, you know, how joyous and, you know, big his reactions would be at times when I'm excited. My dad's favorite thing was like he was a really large personality, big laughter, you know, in a room, he'll be the one who'll be telling the loudest joke, like never afraid of making a joker out of himself, like that person. Very my, like my personality, a little big, extroverted, you know. I was going to say, maybe you get that from him. 
Yeah, I think so. (laughs) I love people and I get that from him. And I think that's what he would have been. He would have really enjoyed the life that I've built over this time. Mm -hmm. I want to just go back to you said that during that period of time, you were uh, eating your feelings. But it just reminded me about um, relationship to our bodies. And um, I was curious how how you felt about your body over the years because certainly i know for me as i'm getting older my body is changing and um and it naturally should and that's what it needs to do um but when you're a public person there is so much focus on the external that it's really hard to not have your your own lens hyper focused on the way you look and i wonder how you've managed that Well, I had a transition period that kind of I had to ask myself that question where I had to say, wait, what is realistic and how are you feeling about this versus how you're supposed to feel about it? So obviously, again, being raised in the industry and like having such a tight lens on what my, you know, shape was or what my figure was or what my measurements were and like, you know, what my minutely looking at every um, part of me that I kind of grew up for a while in my 20s thinking that was normal, like most young people, where you think about these unrealistic standards of beauty, which is like absolutely photoshopped face, like perfect hair. I never used to have, I never used my natural texture for years. I used to always just have a blow, blown out hair. Like I would not do it till just a few years ago. And um, I think it was a big journey for me because I grew up in the entertainment world. I learned everything that was thrown at me at such a fast speed that I just imbibed, you know, the the headlines in a way. I didn't have time to delve deep into what it was doing to me, to me, the person, not me, the public figure. And I think over time, when my body started changing and when I went through that phase where I was eating my emotions and my body started changing and reached my 30s. I went through a struggle because I used to get online, you know, grief from people about like, you're, you're looking different, you're aging, this, that, you know, just it was, it, and it messed with my mind at that time. But my mind was already in such a dark place that mm. I didn't have time for it. My relationship with social media changed. My relationship with the internet changed. I incubated in a way where I protected myself. Like I went into my my cancerian self-preservation self and um, got back into my shell and I kind of healed. I healed and I allowed myself to spend time with me, gave my body what it needed. And if it was a pizza at like one o'clock at night, I would order it. And then slowly I reached a point where I was like, I want to go for a run or I need to do something where I feel like I'm contributing to the health of my body. And that happened over two years. And then I have not consistently worked out and been healthier as I've been in the last two years. And that was, you know, after this really dark phase of my life, which was five or six years ago, that I've I've come to a place where, you know, I, I want to take care of my body. I've recently become a vegetarian. And that's so new for me, but I feel healthier, lighter. I'm contributing towards my own body. I'm working out. I feel more energetic. And, you know, I think that 
it's it's a phase. Every one of us will go through, you know, the ups and downs. But I think eventually, the sooner we start choosing ourselves, the better life becomes. When we get rid of the noise of what the expectation of someone else is, and it's really hard to do, especially like with my job. It is really hard to do, and we've heard it a million times in so many different versions of love yourself first. Love yourself first. You cannot love anyone else until you love yourself first. And yet, what does that mean? It looks so different for everyone, and it's not a tangible thing. Each person has their own roadmap. There isn't, there isn't one size fits all, right? It's only over time that I've come to understand what that means for me. And it's a daily practice of choosing myself and choosing, putting healthy boundaries in place, emotional and physical, in work, relationships, myself. Um, but what does that mean for you to love yourself? It's choosing yourself really is it's it's not like taking on you know that extra thing because i have to prove a point or if you want to if you need validation and you make a decision those are not choices that we make for ourselves i i think about it this way at least that that's how i explained it to myself because you're right love yourself is too vague for someone who's as tangible as me i need to know like it's scientifically what can i do and so I broke it down to myself with intention. So what is your intention for any action through the day? So when I wake up in the morning, I'll have a cup of coffee because I need my brain to wake up. So I'm doing that for me, that it's for me so that other human beings can tolerate the person that I am when I wake up in the morning. So I need coffee. I do it for me. Then whatever your action, I'm going to set, I need to read my lines. Do I read them the night before? Do I need, do I read them in the car when I'm on my way to work? Is it for me or am I being lazy? So in every single thing, if you start thinking about, is your intention beneficial to your well-being? Slowly, you'll realize that you'll be able to start taking things away in your life that is, that is not beneficial to your well-being. And if you're not at a, in a good place, there's no way you can incubate a good environment. I think it was so powerful that we have a collective of these incredible women that have taken the legacy of Victoria's Secret and just turned it on its head. And I feel it's really powerful that a brand with the legacy of Victoria's Secret and an image of what that looks like has decided to go along on this journey and say, you know what, we're, we're going to do right by our customer base. We're going to do right by the trans woman that has spent so much time being a customer and hasn't been acknowledged or a certain body type that has not been acknowledged. And um, I just think that there is, we have an amazing opportunity to really, you know, change the way women are seen in advertising and the standard of beauty. And I just feel very proud to be able to work with all of you guys in being able to achieve that larger, greater mission that I know we all individually have, but collectively, I think it's very powerful. I'm so pleased that you brought this up because I, like you, feel incredibly honored to be a part of this collective of women, I very much believe in the power of united forces. And when I look at everyone who's involved, I see that everyone is doing their own incredible work in their own ways. We have an opportunity to create real cultural change. 
And to have the support of such a huge global brand is, is really unprecedented in this way, because a lot of the time people are just trying to put a Band-Aid on something and make it look good. And that's not what's happening with this company. From my experience thus far is, is there is a team of people who are really interested in creating tangible change. I get to use my brain where I advise the company internally regarding, you know, representation and authentic representation of women and, and inclusive perspectives, making sure that there's women and females telling the stories and taking images and creating narratives. I get to create a lot of that content as a photographer and a director. Um, and I also get to use my face and be forward facing. So I'm using my brain, my creativity and my face. And as women, we don't often get the opportunity to use all of those aspects of ourselves. And I think it's so great that we get to be in charge of our own agency. And I think that's a very powerful tool for women. And also to show that when women come together, because we have the ability to work together, we can actually stand up for sisterhood and for other women and create opportunity that we lacked that we didn't have so that the generations coming after us don't have to inherit our problems. And I feel like hopefully, you know, by God's blessings and grace, this will be the first of many changing faces of entertainment and media. Thank you for being open to, to everything that we talked about. Thank you so much. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye. This is VS Voices, a brand new original podcast series by Victoria's Secret. Listen here or wherever you get your podcasts.